Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Oh, yeah. I am the legendary Burl Bear, that guy over there. Mark C.G. Boyer, fact checker, co-host extraordinaire, producer, Magic Matt Allen. Program, True Crime Uncensored. The great bank heist of 1937. All right. (laughs) It was a sunny day, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. When a blue-black Buick Master 6 yanked up to the curb of the Lincoln National Bank building at 12th and O Streets in Lincoln, Nebraska. They rushed into the building with shotguns and Thompson submachine guns and had everyone in the bank lay down on the ground. Most of the employees thought it was a joke, including the bank manager who recently had a birthday and thought it was a practical joke. Well, the robbers beat him over the head to convince him otherwise. And the man who knows all about this is Jeff MacArthur. Hi, Jeff. Welcome back. Hi, Burl. Thanks for having me back. Well, I am back. Back in black, as ACDC would say. Not that I'm ACDC, mind you. Well, you're wearing your Jewish uh, I'm space wearing laser my shirt. Secret Jewish Space Laser Corps t shirt today <laughs> in, our, in honor of, oh, what's her name? That nutcase uh, congresswoman who <laughs> says that the Jews are melting the, the polar ice caps with our space laser. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, you wrote the book about the great heist. How did you find out about this great heist and how the hell do you go about researching a heist that most people have never heard of? And you wrote this incredible book about it with amazing detail. How did you research yeah. it? Start from square one. Well, the, the very first time, way that I learned about it, it was actually just pure dumb luck. Uh, my grandfather just casually mentioned to my dad uh, about, we basically, apparently they were at lunch one day while they were on a different case that I wrote a different book about, the one that I wrote pro bono about. Uh, while they were defending this girl who was falsely accused, my grandfather just sort of casually mentioned to my dad, hey, by the way, you know that the largest bank robbery in history happened here in Lincoln, and it was Al Capone's long-lost brother who helped get the money back. And my dad, in his infinite wisdom, just went, oh, is that right? And then he just went on with his day. Just kind of did, didn't really uh, ask me anything more. Uh, and then in the late 90s, my dad just casually mentioned to me for some you know, reason. I don't know, even know why he brought it up. We just, he just did. And my reaction was a bit more animated. I was like, well, you tell me more. And my dad was like, oh, I guess I should have asked him more about that while he was still alive. So, I, you know, at first, that was sort of the roadblock, is I just heard this amazing thing and wondered what, what was there to it. And for probably about 10 years, that was it. I, I told him, you know, if you know anybody, and my dad said, well, there were some people who knew my dad. Uh, I'll ask them. I'll see if, they, if any of them know anything more, you know, whatever. And I said, yes, please do. Uh, and, you know, tell, tell me when you can. Well, for about 10 years, it just kind of laid dormant, didn't hear, really learn anything more about it. Uh, and then the break actually ended up happening because I wound up, write, uh, I wound up writing about uh, Al Capone's brother. We didn't get the lead on that. We basically just found out what town he was in. Uh, and in Nebraska, you, the, the small towns are just like they're portrayed in terms of just there being one bar that everybody goes and hangs out at, you know, and stuff. So we, we drove three hours to get to this town called Homer, Nebraska, just on faith that we'd 
talk to somebody who knew something. Uh, and sure enough, when we got there, uh, it was just this one place, and somebody asked about uh, Richard, or this Al Capone's longest brother, it was, it went by the name Richard Hart, and this woman goes, oh yeah, two-gun Hart, uh, and this little old lady comes out, real old, and she had known him when she was young. And she goes, and in fact, a relative of his uh, son-in-law comes in during uh, like one o'clock every day to play dominoes. And he comes in, and it's almost like an old west thing. He comes up, he goes, I hear you're looking for me. And we go, yeah, we asked for this. And he sits down and goes, well, you know he was a Capone. Uh, and then we, we found out that his son, of course, he had died a long time earlier, but uh, Vincenzo Capone slash Richard Hart, his son lived just like a mile from where my dad lived in Lincoln. So he's like, yeah, sorry, it's like a three-hour drive. We like, well, we know, we just came from there. So we go all the way back. We look him up, and we, we meet him. And then basically the research starts for that book. At first it was a screenplay. I wanted to make a movie about it. Then I ended up writing a book about it. And I wind up writing this whole thing about Vincenzo Capone's life, and I get to the part where the bank robbery happened. And they knew very, very little but, uh, so I needed to sort of find out, because I knew that this had happened, uh, not only my grandfather talked about it, but there, there were some other people in the law uh, who worked as lawyers in and around Lincoln who knew some little bits and pieces. So I knew something happened, but I could, you know, didn't really know much about it. So I'm like, okay, well, I better find out from some other places. Um, so I started off by looking up books that, had information about some of the characters who were involved. Um, I mean, first of all, at, at Lincoln, they have a really good uh, histori uh, historical society uh, with newspaper clippings, uh, any old law material, whatever. I went there and found out some, that this, you know, what year it happened, what date it happened, um, some of it. And that, and so from there, I was able to sort of look up some of the books that were involved. Like there was this one written by a woman named Georgette Winkler, uh, who had been the wife of a gangster who had been involved. Uh, I'm gonna try. I'm forgetting his first name, but anyway, um, and uh, she, as luck would have it, she had just written a book like the year or two. No, or, sorry. It, her book had just gotten published a year or two before. She had written it long before, but had never published it while she was alive, and she had made it as part of her will to have it uh, published. It was called Al Capone and His American Boys. And it was basically all this behind-the-scenes information about the uh, Capone organization and some of the people involved and all that that she had, that had never been talked about, uh, but she kind of put in her will, you know, go ahead and let this out after my death because I don't want this, you know, to have the repercussions while I'm right. still alive. So it, that told a lot of information. And then, you know, basically in general, usually what I do is I will read a book and I'll go to the end and I'll see what do they have, you know, what information do they have, et cetera. Um, and I'll start getting things, you know, from there. But the other book that was particularly helpful in terms of, uh, information in Lincoln was, uh, this book called, uh, it was something that was written locally and published locally called What Psalm Singing Son of a Bitch Said That. <laughs> and What a great title. The, yeah, isn't it? And it's a, it's a book about uh, just basically uh, the law in Lincoln, law, the law meaning like lawyers, police. Um, it was essentially this person, because here's the thing, in, uh, in an area like Lincoln and like basically Lancaster County, 
it's obviously an area where everybody in a certain profession knows each other, and so everybody has story, stories. Lawyers always have stories in general, but especially in an area like that where everybody kind of knows, and especially where the law was kind of um, enforced very loosely for a long time, you know, I mean, very informally and in, in, in many times. I mean, the Old West kind of died in areas at different times because, you know, depending on when it became more settled, and so that kind of lingered a little bit longer in Lincoln. Um, and so you had this book just full of all these behind-the-scenes stories of lawyers and um, police and, you know, all that. So I went there. I, I think I had already gone there because it, there was some information about Two Gun. Uh, a lot of things had kind of started from me already, you know, talking, uh, learning from that. Um, let's see, or learning for that book. Uh, there was a guy named Jim McKee who you can see on the, the 12 victim documentary who, because he's a, uh, oh, he's a Nebraska historian who just knows all sorts of, you know, information. And they, it's funny cause he works at this coin store and if you ever go to this, this I forget what it's called, but it's a coin store in Lincoln and you just go and say, uh, here, Jim McKee's here. And you just ask him about any part of history about Nebraska. He'll go, well, come on back to the back. And he'll just sit there and talk and talk and talk and tell you all kinds of uh, information, um, you know, about the, the time period and all that sort of thing. And he kind of gave me some leads. So, I, you know, it was all of these. Once I had these basic leads, then what I would do is I'd go, okay, what are some behind-the-scenes or, or, or who, where do they find this information? I'd usually go to back of books, or if I was talking to Jim McKee, I'd be like, okay, who told you this? Who told you that? And that would always lead me to more people, to more books, and I would you know, start getting more and more information. And originally, this was only supposed to be one chapter in the book to Gun Hart about Al Capone's long-lost brother, but uh, it was just becoming more, there was so much to it. I had originally just thought, okay, the, the bank was robbed, they got away with the money, and then uh, to, Richard Hart went to his brother and said, hey, we agreed to stay out of each other's territory, because that I already knew about from the research I had done on the two-gun book. Um, I thought, okay, he just went to him and said, give me, you know, uh, lean in your guys and have them give the money back. But as I started doing this research for this one chapter, I found out it was more and more complicated, and it had become just such a big story that I'm like, this really needs to be a book in and of itself. Right. Uh, especially because he started having all these people involved, like the, the guy, the first person to use the lie detector. The, it was one of the first uses of, or the inventor of the lie detector got involved. And like that one, I would fly, I found out about as just a casual mention in the book, uh, uh, what Tom Singing Son of a Bitch said that. Somebody just kind of casually mentioned that. I'm like, wait a second, what? What are you talking, you know, what is he talking about? So I go to Google, find out, you know, any sources I can about uh, the invention of the lie detector, then go to, you know, books written about that and find out little tidbits and was like, okay, so where was he during this particular period? And then find out, oh, okay, he was in Missouri. What was going on in Missouri? So I, you know, went to some of the other sources, like I think it was, was it Georgette Winkler's book? It was somebody's book. No, somebody's book then talked about a, uh, an FBI raid that was happening at that time. And is a lot of this is like triangulating because it's like okay, then somebody else talked about this FBI raid happening. So then I find out about someone else who's there. So I find either a book on that or a newspaper on that. Uh, and at one point, I, I went up to uh, Sioux City because there was there, there was a whole like little Chicago that was happening there, 
and went into their history records and found, you know, if, if I could get the information that would be useful for the book, I would use that. Or if it wasn't that, then, like, what's another name that I could then look up online or from another book or something like that? Um, anyway, I'm, I guess I'm rambling at this point, but that it's, it is like a lot of triangulating. The big thing, though, was at the very end, which that's a whole new story in and of itself, but at the very end, I was just going to get some headlines from the newspapers of the Historical Society. I thought I was done with the book, and then when I went to look at the headlines, I found, because before I had, I had like looked at front pages, you know, it's like, oh, okay, they mentioned the bank robbery, here's some information. But then when I actually went into the Historical Society and went further in, just for some headline names, I found these big, long articles, and I found out that Chicago had been writing about it too, and I was, going, I was already prepared to publish the book. The book was supposed to be published in two weeks. And so in two weeks, this whole other area opened up, and I spent, I literally, I almost didn't, well, I mean, there was very little time I slept during two weeks. There were three days where I literally didn't sleep. I just stayed up night and day going through pages and uh, all that, and I'm going through all these different pages of the, because one of the things they had done was they had, uh, they had transcribed the uh, courtroom um Drama. I mean, the, uh, the, the, what do you call it? Um, testimony. Testimony. The trial, yeah, testimony. Thank you. Yeah. The trials. Cause they had brought some of these criminals back. Basically, well, there were two people who really went after it. It was a guy named, uh, Robert Van Pelt and a guy named Max Toll. Max Toll had been a good friend of my grandfather. So as soon as his name came up, I was like, Oh, that's how my dad grandpa knew. And this guy named, the other guy named Robert Van Pelt was very, very by the book. Uh, Max Toll was very, um, crooked. So, uh, Van Pelt was very straight laced. I actually interviewed his son for it. It was, uh, not long before he died. Um, and what was it? Uh, so Robert Van, oh, so Robert Van Pelt was actually following the money while Max Toll was actually going and just sort of arresting some people that he knew were not involved and really just extorted wait, wait, wait them off. Wait a second, wait a second. He's arresting people he knew were not involved? No, yeah, exactly. He knew they were not involved. Basically, gang people he knew who were gangsters, but uh, and but he knew they weren't involved in this gang, uh, bank robbery. But he basically would take them and say, "Look, I know you didn't pull this bank job, but I also know you know the guy who did. So you're going to help me find the actual guys, or you're going to go and go to prison for this uh, for this bank robbery." And they wound up going before the judge. And like one of the the guys said, one of my favorite moments was he uh, the. Um, judge at the arraignment says, okay, your name, the guy gives the name, and then he says, occupation, and he goes, your honor, I'm a bank robber, but I didn't pull this job. <laughs> uh, and and so that became a, a whole thing. Max Toll was extorting the mob, saying, hey, I'm going to, I'm basically going to hold these people kidnapped and, unless you tell me who it is. And the other the three guys said, yeah, we know who did it, and we're not going to tell you because as soon as we do, we're dead. Um, so, so, but that, that was the thing is I knew that these people had been arrested and I knew that they had gone back to Lincoln, but I didn't think there was any information about the court cases because I had gone to the uh, historical society and the, and the courthouse and all uh, everywhere I could think of to look for the documents about these trials. Couldn't find them anywhere. Then just before publication, I learned that it had all been published in the newspapers and I came home. I actually was staying with my dad. I, I had gone to the historical society one day. They were all on microfilm. And I had learned, I 
just seeing how big this thing was and how many pages there were. And I came home after the first day really discouraged. My dad was like, oh, so did you get your headlines? So I went, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. There's way more to this than I ever thought. Uh, and so he offered to go, and my mom actually did too. So we made a family outing. We actually went back, and we were diff- sprinkled a different, through different parts of the uh, historical society going through microfilm. And you could hear us. Like my dad every now and then would go like, Oh, is that right? And my mom would be in another area. She would start laughing, and I was like, oh, my God. And every time any of us would find something worth putting in the book, we would uh, push print. And, I mean, just about everything was. I mean, we, I had a stack, like, two feet tall of pages. And that was the first day. We spent eight hours that day and then four hours the next. And I just came back with all these pages going, wow, there was, there was so much more that I knew. And I already thought I had a lot. Uh, so for two weeks, I went through those papers and basically put the, plugged them in to the whole thing because, I, you know, like I say, I'd already had the other pieces from all these different little places, you know, pieces of information. So I just want to clarify, was it microfilm or microfiche? Uh, see, I think it was microfilm. I mean, it was, maybe it was microfiche. I was, was it, was it uh, little square uh, pictures with all the writing on it? Yes, and you put it in spirals. What? It was on the spirals, you know, where you would. Uh, okay, so that would be microfilm. Yeah, yeah. yeah this was before you had digital storage, and to mm-hmm. archive something, you essentially miniaturized it, uh, either on a strip of film or on little squares. Right. And yeah. uh, you would you would digitize in effect, pick pictures of everything, and it would get squished. And then you could store tremendous amounts of information in a small amount of space. Yeah. Well, boy, talk about oh. time pressure. <laughs> yeah. Well, one guy said, it, we, I went to lunch with somebody, and he said, uh, talk about the 11th hour. You're down to the 11th hour. You're at 11.59. <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> so how long did you delay the book to, to include some of this new material? Oh, I didn't delay it at all. I had it done, and I literally just sat 24 hours a day for for two weeks and just got it done. Amazing. Uh, Was there anything that you left out you you wish you'd put in? Not well. You know, I didn't leave out anything that I know of. I mean, I I went through them later on. There is a time I have been kind of thinking that someday I may go back and look a little care, more carefully and see if there's anything I missed. But I, I did, at least from what was printed out, I looked at afterwards and I was like, okay, there's nothing that I really feel I missed. However, after it was published and after it was out there and people were reading it, uh, I got an email from the, uh, the son of the president of the bank. Because the president had been gone. Because I always get mixed up because I'm pretty sure it was the president because the person who was there whose birthday was, who was like, he was a manager or I think he was the manager in charge. Anyway. So it was the yeah the the one who owned the bank or the president or whatever. He Lineberger in the book it talks about him being gone and the bank robbers came in and went where's Lineberger you know he we know he has the key to the bank vault where you know and and he was nowhere to be found everybody's like no he's at a business meeting um, I'm so sorry he's not here and he the, the gangsters almost kill some people being like you know well we need that key we need to get in there and he's supposed to be here somewhere and they're like no he's not here. And that's what got published. Well, this this person emailed me later on and said, it's always been the family secret that we know about that's always been, you know, kept 
and kept under wraps that he was across the street. He had said he was going to a business meeting, but really he was just having breakfast across the street and just wanted to, he was playing hooky. <laughs> so, and he, so. But then there was a, a quirk of happenstance that facilitated right. the robbery at this point. What was it? So, yeah, somebody had forgotten to uh, turn on the time lock. It was supposed to be... Uh, well, it was open to... already. They just had to open the door. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> the but, was uh, already open. Uh, that yep. sounds so much like an inside job, but it wasn't. How did, the, how did the, the this gang know so much about this bank and what was going on? Well, there, you know, we, we don't know for certain, but uh, what's suspected, and this is what kind of came out, especially through the, that book about the insides of the Lincoln law or Lancaster County law, uh, was that there had been an inspector had come by, or they, they had... Well, uh, no, sorry, there's somebody who was supposedly a salesman had come by a couple weeks before saying that they sold alarm systems. And so they had shown this person around to all different parts of the bank and, like, every aspect of it, um, giving this person a tour, thinking it was, you know, for a possible sale. Uh, and that was the only thing. I mean, there's nothing else that they could think of. Now, they, they never found out for certain. They never caught anybody red-handed or anything, but that seemed like the thing that, that was most likely is that there was this earlier person was a scout. It was very similar to, uh, in Stealing Manhattan, a very similar thing was done uh, continually, and that is, is that uh, Bronca, the, uh, my friend Punch's mom, who was married to Mr. Stan, who was kind of head of this operation, a very beautiful woman, would show up, at uh, well, these jewelry manufacturing firms or whatever, uh, dressed uh, just to the nines with a gorgeous uh, mink coat on, bedecked with diamonds and jewelry, and bat her eyelashes. Go, I've never seen the inside of a vault before. Why? <laughs> Why? Let's show you. <laughs> yeah. And they'd show her everything. Why, that's just so fascinating. And she'd go back <laughs> and, and, just, and draw it all out in detail for her husband to plan the heist. Yeah. And she'd bring yep. all the information needed for, needed for the heist. People are so trusting. Yeah, especially if a gorgeous woman batting her eyelashes go, I've never seen the inside of a ball before. <laughs> so uh, so, uh, so the, the employees huh? thought this was a hoax. Yeah. Or a joke. And uh, <laughs> right. somebody saw what was happening across the street and called the police. What happened then? Well, at first, it, it, there were several people who were still coming into the bank because it was just opening. And this one woman sees it as she's walking toward the bank. She sees this guy standing out front, and then somebody else grabs somebody and, like, pulls him inside. So she realizes something's going on. So she runs across the street to somebody who's selling, it was either radio parts or record parts, um, and she tells him what's happening, and he doesn't believe her at first. He's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I mean, nobody believes that anything like this would happen. But then when she is able to point out, they're, like, grabbing another person and sort of yanking them. And it's like, it's basically, if anybody comes close enough, they didn't want them to see what was happening and, you know, call the police. So once she's able to convince them, then they call, the, the guy finally calls the police, 
uh, and they uh, they quickly think, oh, this must be a hoax. You know, they will send over. They, they think that it's like some kids playing a prank. So they send this young guy who is in charge of basically, you know, staffing up kids. And it's like, oh, there's two people. He's supposed, it's some young guy along with, you know, someone who's a little bit more experienced. The other, the one who's more experienced gets on a motorcycle and drives away. There's no explanation as to why both of them didn't hop on, but apparently the other guy, the older guy just got on his motorcycle and was just like, you're walking. And <laughs> he rides ahead. The young kid goes, uh, you know, because walks over there. The motorcycle guy gets there first, and the the lookout, the gangster lookout, just sort of pulls open his trench coat, uh, shows that he has his machine, his, his Tommy gun there, and basically just says "scram." And so the guy with the motorcycle girl continues on, and then the uh, and he starts heading back to the police department. The younger guy comes along and sees the same thing. The guy, you know, shows that he's got and basically warns off the uh, the, the younger police officer and tells the others, "We got to get out of there." The the motorcycle cop gets back and says, "Hey, there is really a, a bank robbery going on. We got to get there." The problem is that the one uh, squad car is in the shop. They only have one squad car and it's being repaired, so they all have to get into their own cars and drive down to the <laughs> bank. Uh, <laughs> this is how informal the Lincoln Police Department is in 1930. And the uh, the gangsters get in their car and and. They actually just go like one block, but then they just totally disappear. Um, all of Nebraska is shut down. Uh, you know, all the roads out of the state and the city are shut down, but, n- you know, they never see them. They never find, you know, what happened to them. They just completely got away. They probably have a, they had a, some kind of a place to stash the car in themselves, a warehouse, a garage, something. They, they do. Uh, shall I get it? it it's revealed at the end. It's kind of a spoiler at the very end of the book where they, it was finally revealed. Actually, it wasn't revealed for close to 100 years, and then it was Georgette Winkler's book. I think it was like 89 and, or 85 or 90 years before Georgette Winkler's book came out, uh, and she revealed how they got away. Shall I, shall I go ahead and say? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, the book is it, fascinating. People should buy it anyways. Yeah. Cool, yeah. It's, it's this big, it was a big storage truck. Uh, basically a truck that, you know, you, or, uh, you know, a moving truck kind of thing that was large enough to, to store their car and somebody, they just had it around, uh, the other side of the block and the car zipped around and they had ramps up into it and pulled up and then they closed it. The only person who saw it was this, uh, woman who people considered to be mentally ill and she told that story, but nobody believed her. <laughs> and then here we are, 80, 90 years later, revealed, yep, that's, that, the woman was right. They, and they, this truck just basically drove, you know, out of the city and then out of the state and got away. This is fascinating. Amazing. But it gets even more bizarre from here. <laughs> yeah, or should I just go, go on through the, what happens? Sure. Uh, no, the next thing that happens is the police, the local sheriff, much to his credit, relatively honest, uh, starts the investigation. How does he proceed? Uh, he, yeah, I forgot about the, the original sheriff. Yeah, that's right. He, interesting kind of character. Uh, he had lost a leg from saving somebody from a, from getting run over from by a train. Um, and he, uh, he sends out information. Actually, he starts calling around to different places. This is one of the things I looked up on the, 
uh, at the Historical Society originally because they had all the letters written by him and written to him. So apparently somebody had gone out and found every place that he had written these letters to and had them send the letters back so they could keep them in the Historical Society. Um, but he had uh, he writ- wrote to all these different places in different states. In particular, Texas had had a rash of bank robberies. These are the famous bank robberies of you know, the time of, like, Bonnie and Clyde and, um, you know, a lot of people you, you read about. Uh, and he, so he had assumed that they had come up from some of these places, that some of these bank robbers had come up. Uh, and so he's, he's trying to get any information he can from some of these places, calling them, um, and doesn't really get much information. And there's about then that Max Pohl, who's the county attorney, and Robert Van, Van Pelt, who is the assistant U.S. attorney, whose office was in the same building where the bank robbery had happened, uh, they, they got involved in you know, two very, very different kind of people. Um, and, yeah, the sheriff stayed involved for a certain amount of time and basically mo- mostly was there to sort of help the others. But, uh, yeah, he mostly came upon um, dead ends. Unless he were thinking about something specific that I'm not thinking about. Uh, well, he, he wrote to what was at that time called... Uh the uh, Bureau of Investigation. Right. Okay, Not yeah, yeah. federal he wrote at this the... point. And what did Hoover, uh, J. Edgar, respond with? Yeah, well, he he had actually he told uh, the sheriff that, and that's right, he, that's, uh, this is before they actually had a lot of the rules involved. And bank robberies at that time were not federal, uh, were not um Protected, they were protected by the FTC, so they were not federal crimes. And so, therefore, he, his hands were tied. He could not get involved. Uh, nowadays, you'd think that, you know, take that for granted, and then, of course, the FBI would get involved. But since, they, since it wasn't actually the FBI, it was the Bureau of Investigation, they could not get involved, but he wanted to. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover really, really wanted to get involved in this. And this bank robbery wound up uh, becoming the impetus to help uh, to, to help um, or sort of push Jagger uh, Hoover in that direction to be uh, to want to make bank robberies a federal crime, especially because people were robbing banks in one town and then driving a car across state lines, which was they were new in the old west. Of course, they would be on horseback and they couldn't get very far. But now, with the speed of cars, they can just go across state lines. And now, you know, the state where it happened, they couldn't do anything because now the bank robbers are in another state. And they, they couldn't really coordinate very well. It's it's fascinating. Now, yeah. um, the local, what we, would you call Max, the district attorney? Yeah, Max Toll. Max Toll. And he has a particular take on how to solve the crime, which wasn't, <laughs> yes. which wasn't looking for the bad guys and following the evidence. He won another route. <laughs> Right. Yeah, he basically extorted the mob, which is one of the fun kind of things. He, he the first thing he finds out is, and I think it was, it was through J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, if you know things about J. Edgar Hoover, he did a lot of things kind of un, uh, under the table himself. And so I think it was through his connection to Hoover that he found out that there uh, there were these gangsters being there, there were these raids happening on gangsters down in East St. Louis. And St. Louis was a town where it's on, uh, it straddles uh, state lines. And so people could commit a crime in one state on one side of part of the city and then go to the other part of the city. And now they're technically in another state. 
and you know a lot of the rules have changed, uh, and it was, it was difficult for police to deal with jurisdictions and et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, so you had a lot of criminals in that area, and Max Cole found out about this raid that was happening, and he knew somehow that the gangsters were connected to one another, uh, to you know the different groups or organizations. So he went, and I think it was because of the, some of the information the sheriff had gotten that, that, because a lot of the times what they would do, he would do is he would write to some of these sh- sheriffs or uh, police captains or whatever in other areas, and they would come back saying, well, we have this guy and this guy, and we know they're connected here, et cetera, et cetera. So Max Paul kind of put some pieces together, and he goes to East St. Louis where they've got these guys uh, captured, uh, where they, they, they've gotten these five uh, gangsters for some completely other crime. And, and he goes down there with one of the witnesses that he believes will just play ball, will just sort of say what he wants the, her to say. And he says, hey, isn't this one of the gangsters who committed the, the bank robbery? And she goes, well, yes, yes, that is. And, you know, they, they wind up doing this with three of the gangsters believing that they're, you know, they robbed the uh, Lincoln Bank. Uh, and Paul goes to him and says, I know this is all BS, but... We are going to put you in prison for, you know, 20, 30 years unless you tell us who actually did it. And they're just like, nope, not going to not gonna do that because the, the other people are, you know, more dangerous, et cetera. And Toll, oh, but then um, they were having trouble being able to extradite them back to Lincoln. And so uh, Toll's trying to figure out how to do that, and he finds out that this guy who's invented this thing called the lie detector has, has shown up to sort of do some work with them. Uh, and he sees what the device looks like. And at that time, the lie detector was this huge device that goes over the whole body. It almost looks like a science fiction device, like some kind of sci-fi torture device. And so he says, so he, he says, set that up in a room. And he gets one of the gangsters, and he brings him into the room. He goes, we have ways of making you talk, basically. Opens the door. There's, here's this device that looks like a torture device. And the guy's like, okay, I won't fight extradition. <laughs> so... <laughs> so they uh, end up getting him back to Lincoln, and they uh, um, they set up the trial date. And Toll basically says, "Okay, well, either you're going to tell me, or you're going to be the one to pay, and I'm going to look like the hero because I at least got the criminals back here." Now it's still a dangerous situation because 2.7 million dollars in 1930—that's over uh, over 40 million dollars in today's money—and there's no FDIC, so. There's no insurance on all this. I mean, they, you know, the state is the, the, so many of these uh, farmers, so many of these people in this area are just going to go broke. It's going to devastate the area because the Great Depression has just begun. And so you have all these people who are wiped out, and Max Cole is really trying to get the money back. Um, meanwhile, Robert Van Pelt is following the evidence. It's, it's a lot of the money that was stolen was um, bonds. And so he's able to tra- track down where some of these bonds have been sold. And one of the places he goes is early uh, uh, Las Vegas. And so he follows that there, and that ends up le- leading him to the Ozarks, and he ends up going out to that area. Now, unfortunately with that, I was never able to find very much information because he basically went completely undercover, and he never told his son what happened, and there was never, it, you know, that, that was, part was just never told by anybody. But he kind of disappeared into the Ozarks looking for this money while Max Pohl very publicly brought these other guys up and was holding them, you know, in front of uh, the, the public. In fact, he even had a moment 
<clears throat> where he, you know, crowds were watching these people. This is just how crazy it was once I learned how famous this story was at the time. There's photographs of, like, crowds of people on both sides of the street watching and photo- photographers taking pictures of them as they, as they uh, paraded them up to the courthouse. And he brings them up and holds them all up there. Is like, hey, here are your, you know, here are your crooks. And not even like, okay, here's here the, these three people on uh, on trial. There's no sense of innocent until proven guilty. It's just like we got the crooks and we're going to prove them guilty. And he's it's this whole show where he's just like, well, I'm going to um, put you behind bars for a long time, and you can see that the the, the crowds are behind me unless you say, and they they just would not uh, would not tell him. <laughs> so the uh, three three uh, go on trial. Three different outcomes, you could say. Yeah. Well, they, one one see, one who had a lawyer who was much smarter than than well, <laughs> who else? The prosecution. Yeah, that's true. He ends up using a uh, oh, what was it? Um, yeah, what was the, the defense? Because it was, a, it, was a, it was an interesting thing, the way that they found I remember the story more than I remember the actual defense. It was just such a uh, <clears throat> such a moment that they, you'd expect to see on Perry Mason or something where the lawyer is trying to think of how to use the, the defense against them or for, or for this guy, and he winds up going to a mentor of his out in the country, and they're winding up sitting on his, his porch you know, looking out at the, at the countryside where the, when the, um, the other lawyer, the older sort of mentor lawyer says something along the lines of having to prove that there was a robbery or something like that. And then you get making it not about whether or not his guilt, you know, whether or not he's guilty of the robbery, but prove to me that there was a robbery, even though it was a very public one. Um, and so, yeah, it was this very clever kind of maneuvering. Uh, yeah, man. You know, this is the problem with writing writing one book and then uh, writing multiple books. Is when you finish with one, and it's years later, <laughs> you're like, well, "What was it in there?" Um, I'm remembering more what what Max Toll was doing because at the basically while the trials were going on, uh, Toll was still trying to find some lead. And what wound up happening was this guy Gus Winkler. This is where the um, Georgette Winkler, the the, the um, widow. Uh, sort of comes in because she she was married to this guy named Gus Winkler, who was in a, he was uh, one of uh, Al Capone's top guys, and you think that has nothing to do with it. He's just in Chicago, etc. But this Gus Winkler winds up in a car crash, uh, and while uh, unconscious, he starts muttering about the Lincoln bank robbery, oh. and so clearly knows something about. It. So Max Cole is like right there. Oh, you know, I skipped a, a very important part. So they, the, the, the first big lead that they had was uh, that the, the um, lookout that the two police officers had seen was this guy named Fred Burke, who had the, the um, nickname Killer, Fred Killer Burke. And he had been captured. That was a whole other story. He'd gone undercover. He'd done all these other crimes. He went undercover. Went undercover with actually marrying a woman and, like, starting a whole new life with her, helping her raise her kids, and, like, had this entire other experience. And finally, when the police caught up with him, it was, like, this big experience. Oh, and there had been, he had been living in a small town where there was a, uh, this one, there was one member in the, in the small town who was really into conspiracy theories. And he had, been, he had said all these things about believing in all these different 
things. And so he had no credibility. Nobody believed him about anything. So when he said, that's Fred Burke, they're all like, yeah, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> then here comes the police capture him. But once um, Toll realizes they have him, he goes in there and tries to uh, extradite him back to Lincoln. He's like, okay, we got one of the actual bank robbers. But the problem is that um, Fred Burke was wanted for so many other crimes that it was like wait in line, buddy. Uh, and so he wasn't going to be able to get a piece of them because he was getting extradited to other places where he had committed even worse crimes. So when when Gus Winkler comes along and he's been unconscious, Max Toll really wants to get out there fast, get there before everybody else, because, again, Gus Winkler's wanted for so many things in so many other areas. But he gets there, and he tries to work out something to get White, uh, Winkler extradited to Lincoln first. Uh, but... Um, but you know, Winkler is like, no, you can't, you know, have me. I'm not going to get caught for anything. And it looks like he's going to fall through his fingers again. But then there's some other guys because it's pretty clear at this point that that Capone's going to go down, and other people are going to are wanting to vie for his uh, position. Right. And since Winkler's so high up there, they're like, we want to kill this guy, so you know, we're a little higher. Uh, Georgette learns of this. And so she goes and gets to Capone and manages to keep him alive for a little bit longer. But then Winkler realizes, hey, my best chance of, of living is to get taken by this guy from Nebraska. And so he gets taken to Lincoln. Uh, and then we, and uh, Toll works out a thing with him going, hey, I won't prosecute you, even though you're the only guy who's actually guilty of this of all the people here. Um, but if you can help me get the money back, I already have three people that I can say were the bank robbers, so I'll just prosecute them if you can just get me the money back. So, so he works at, at this under, under the you know uh, table deal. Gus Winkler is going around getting them to give. We're trying to get people to give the money back, but of course you're trying to call gangsters to give you know two point seven million dollars back. <clears throat> that is when Al Capone's long lost brother who had, and this is a whole other story. Yeah, let's let's hold up on that point there. Hold up for a moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Three individuals, well, three individuals were tried for the bank robbery. One Uh passed away in prison. The other got off on a technicality from a really smart lawyer. The third one does his time. Yeah. And when he Mm -hmm. gets out of prison, what was his take on what happened? Um, you know, I'm trying to remember this. I remember that he was killed only a few months later. Right, but when um, he got out, he was asked if he was bitter for going to prison for a crime he didn't commit. No. And his his yeah. take on it was, hell, I'd done 20 other bank robberies and killed a whole bunch of people. I got off easy. <laughs> right. That's right. I forgot about that bit. Yes, that's right. In fact, where did I find that? You were wondering about where I found some of this. Stuff. Um, that's a man. Okay. Now, now I'm curious as to where I found that part because <laughs> that, that, that 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 cracked me up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He realizes he did way worse stuff. So it's like just doing. I think it was 20 years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 20 years. He's like, right. I got off way yeah, I got off easy. All right. So you know, we're we're at the point where we're trying to get the money back. 
Who are uh-huh. the Secret Six, and what was their involvement here? Oh, my God, yeah, that was a whole other part of the story. Yeah, it, that's, it's so funny because the this, this story is so dense. It's, I'm, I have the book in my hand now, and I forget how much stuff was in just this one small book. Yes, so the Secret Six is one of those organizations people don't, even, don't know about, but it was, such a, it was behind a lot of stuff. Uh, imagine Batman and, and uh, multiplying by six. Uh, except they didn't actually go out and, and fight people, but it was six very, very wealthy individuals who just got tired of all the crime in Chicago, particularly because they were working there. One of them was the person who started Sears Roebuck. Uh, in fact, I think his last name was Roebuck. I think he's one of the two. Anyway, um, they, uh, so they so they basically pooled their money into uh, essentially helping the police cat- capture um, various criminals, and especially going after Capone because he was, you know, sort of the head criminal, uh, head of the most biggest organization there. And they actually were the ones that got the untouchable started. Uh, um, Elliot Ness was the cousin of one of them, and they knew that he was very straight-laced and that, he, you know, he had a group of people who couldn't be bought off. And basically, they essentially said one of the reasons why the untouchables were untouchable, the whole idea is, well, they can't be bought off. That's been the whole famous thing about the untouchables. But sort of the secret behind it was the secret six were like anybody, anything anybody offers you, we'll pay the, we'll pay you more. So they always knew that you know, well, hey, you know, we, that's why they couldn't be bought off. Because um, they are already bought off people. on the honest side of the equation. Right. Exactly. That's a great way of putting it. Exactly. They were now, bought off, but uh, you. Know, uh-huh. Did one of these individuals know of Two Heart? Oh boy, I'm trying to remember if they knew. I think they did. I yes, forget if they. I'm trying to make the uh-huh. connection to Two Heart, who oh. had a, an agreement with his brother. Yes. So the way that they that they uh, had a deal that that actually came out because of a reporter, oddly enough. Um, so, uh, is, yeah, I, I should mention real quick. His name was the real name was Vincenzo Capone. He went by the name Richard Hardy because he didn't want people to know he was Italian. He actually became famous as the lawman before Al became famous as a uh, as a gangster. Um, and then in 1924, uh, Al, uh, one of Al's brothers died. And it was Frank uh, Capone, and Al decided, and Al, that's basically when Al became in charge of, of the outfit. Uh, he determined um, a couple of things. Number one, he wanted to find his brother who had run away as a teenager. Uh, he's like, you know, we've lost one brother, let's find the other one that ran away. At the same time, he had, uh, he had operations in Sioux City, Iowa, and Kansas City, uh, Kansas, and the road that went between them went right to this town called Homer, Nebraska. And Homer was known as being this place where there was this one lawman who was this, this huge overachiever named Richard Two Gun Hart. Having no idea that Richard is his brother, uh, he's like, okay, we got to figure out how we're going to handle this kind of thing. And, and so Richard his just. His nickname. His nickname was because exact, he had two sidearms, like a cowboy. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he dressed up go around. Yeah, and that's why he got his nickname. Right, right. Yeah, he had uh, he had moved to the Midwest because he had seen Western movies and he wanted to live like a cowboy. And particularly, he really loved William S. Hart, who was a a cowboy uh, hero or uh, um, a celebrity. He made yeah a lot of Western. (laughs) Yes. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, you can in L.A. You can go up to 
Uh, there's the William S. Hart Museum and all the grounds that are there, and they have I'm a lot of events there and everything. The William S. Hart High School. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. So William S. Hart was very much of it. He wanted to preserve the way the West looked, and that's why he was really into making these movies, etc. And Vincent, young Vincenzo Cavone was very taken by him, wanted to be just like him. And so when he grew up, after he was, he was a, he, a war hero, actually, during World War One. when he came back home, uh, we suspect that actually it was um, the, the head general of the, of the U.S. armies that told him about it to be Pershing, because Pershing was a huge fan of Nebraska himself. There's a lot of things that Lincoln named after him because he had lived here for a while. Anyway, uh, and we know that, that um, Capone was uh, personally decorated by uh, Pershing, because Pershing actually, there's a photograph actually of Pershing giving him a ribbon. Uh, anyway, so he came back to Nebraska, and he got on a train, and he just sort of hopped off in this small town that looked like an old west town, and he's like, oh, he wants to be the sheriff, but, you know, they really don't have that. But when Prohibition comes along, it's like, okay, well, that's good enough. Uh, so he gets a horse. He gets he dresses himself head to toe as a cowboy, even though nobody dresses like that anymore, and he just starts living the dream, and he starts working as a uh, Prohibition officer I saves a woman from a flood, marries her soon after, never tells her about, you know, what his past was. He just, he says he's from Oklahoma. And, uh, and as his brother starts becoming famous, he still keeps it secret from him and stuff. But then he goes on sort of a, a secret trip and he doesn't tell anybody where he's going. Cause he's, he, he'd been going undercover several times on some of these jobs anyway. So people just think, Oh, he's doing that. But instead he actually goes to Chicago and, uh, goes and meets with his brother and think, uh, thankfully for preservation, uh, there was a reporter right there who knew Al, um, and Al liked this guy, this, this reporter. <laughs> it's funny, when you see the, the interview, this guy did not like Al, but Al really liked him, this, this reporter. Uh, and in fact, this guy had taken some of the most famous photographs of, of Al Capone that there are. Anyway, he actually witnessed and Al introduced his brother. He said, hey, this is my brother. He lives in Nebraska. He's a prohibition officer. So the guy says... Well, aren't you going to arrest him? Aren't you going to arrest Al? And and uh, Richard says, "Well, I will if he ever sets foot in Nebraska." So they make this deal to stay out of right in front of this reporter that they will stay out of each other's territory. The reporter does not uh, report the story right there. They say, "Hey, we got to keep it secret. We don't want anybody to know that you know my brother lives here." Blah blah blah. But decades later, when it came out, when the whole story came out, that reporter then later revealed that, "Yeah, I had seen them." And this is what had happened, and you know, and that's how that part of the story came out. Yeah, and, so. and this agreement becomes a piece of the puzzle that uh, convinces Capone to uh, to cooperate and help get the money back. Right. So, yeah, essentially, uh, Vincenzo then goes to Al and says, "Hey, we agreed to stay out of each other's territory." And here you some of your guys did a bank robbery. And Al didn't even like his guys doing bank robberies anyway. As much as people talk about it as him as being the ultimate criminal, he saw himself as a legitimate businessman. He was just peddling in, in businesses that were illegal. And then, of course, <laughs> whenever he needed to enforce those yeah, numbers, his own rules, women, the only uh, uh, prohibition huh? alcohol. Hey, I got to share something with you, Jeff. You were talking about last minute information. I happened to be, happened to come across an article in the. Uh, New York Daily News about a great unsolved crime. In July 21st, 1979, Benjamin Williams and John Kenny walked into the MTA headquarters where both men were supervisors. Didn't take long for them to notice something was missing. $600,000 in $10 bills. 
had vanished <laughs> overnight. Quote, this still unsolved mystery is the biggest whodunit in MTA history, wrote the New York wow. Daily News 30 years later. The sensational and seemingly impossible theft promptly marked a media frenzy. There were page huh? after page of coverage detailing the probable outline of events ad nauseum. The police were baffled. That doesn't mean they were covered in styrofoam. And the public <laughs> began speculating what could have happened. And I wrote in my book, Stealing Manhattan, you can stop speculating. Someone should buy a copy of this book for the MTA. The crime is solved. We know who done it. Quote, 600000 in $10 bills weighs a hell of a lot, says Bronco with a coy smile. I personally never tried carrying that amount of money, but I know people who have or say they have. Either way, I'm sure they had their hands full. Now, <laughs> what I didn't have in the book is how they did it because I didn't have time to get that information right. from the guy who did it, which was Mr. Stan, of course, right. and Alex Grebeck. And then you can go ahead and add it to volume two. So uh, I'll have to, if I get the details from Alex, I'll have that in volume two. But at least I said, who done it? <laughs> so, uh, so with the Secret Six and Capone's uh-huh. brother and the fact that a Capone's heir apparent, because Capone knew he was going to jail, that they all collaborated to get the money back and return as much of it as they could. Exactly. The MTA never got their money back, but, but it was kid, totally insured. Did the kid insured. get the dirt bike? Huh? Did the kid get the dirt bike? No, the kid never got the dirt bike either. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jeff. Jeff, thank you. It's uh, the book is the Great Heist. Also, check out Two Gone Heart and Secret, the Secret Brother of Al Capone. Fascinating stuff. Thanks again, Jeff. It's always a pleasure. Go ahead, ask the important question. Oh, the important question. What's next, bro? What an amazing question. What's next is Magic Man Allen. And the Demons of Decadence, live from the Lightning Up Lounge, on OutlawRadioLive.com.